Welcome to Her Story Podcast. Son histoire à elle, un balado bilingue qui met en valeur non seulement le succès des femmes du Québec, mais qui souligne leur pratique et vie de tous les jours. I'll be talking with creative, successful and game-changing women who are inspiring and relatable in the ordinary and extraordinary lives they lead. Salut tout le monde, le grand public de Son Histoire Elle. Hi, Her Story listeners. Mon nom c'est Kathleen. I'm your host, Kathleen Stavert. And next up on the sex series, I had a very informative conversation with Jennifer Drummond, also known as JD, who's the coordinator at Concordia Sexual Assault Resource Center. The work that her and her colleagues are doing is elemental, especially in a university setting. She answered my questions on the kind of counseling they do for victims of sexual harassment and assault, how to deal with the gray areas of sexual aggression and violence, and how the use of language has an impact in this area. She proposes new modalities of prevention and education that really should be implemented over the outdated forms of prevention, such as suggesting women take self-defense classes to not get abused. The conversation switches directions when I asked JD about her research on sexuality and aging and disease. How do couples maintain a healthy sexual relationship with one of them is terminally ill? And how does a person with a visible disability celebrate their own sexuality? She gives beautiful and heartbreaking examples of people who are having intimate relationships and sex in different ways. This is an intimate look at the highs and lows of being a sexual person in an over-sexualized world that is fraught with taboos and abuse of power. We need more people like JD out there on the front lines who educate and support. This conversation may be triggering for some listeners and may also be helpful to some listeners. The interview begins with JD talking about her and her SARC team. So now our team has expanded, so it's not just me anymore. Uh, it is a group of volunteers that staff our drop-in space, and they provide active listening and support and uh, explain resources to people, like internal to the university and external. And then uh, we also now have a full-time social worker. So that's great. She takes on the majority of the counseling, and we're able to offer long-term counseling now. Mm. And then I do the more urgent and complex cases, so situations where I need to call together the sexual assault response team, which can be people from different parts of the university that need to come together very quickly uh, and, and help with different pieces of the situation. And that also avoids the victim survivor having to go around to different offices and repeat what happened. Right, yeah. Yeah, so there's that part that I do, and then um, overseeing my staff and volunteers, Uh, and uh, developing the content for prevention education. And so with Bill 151, uh, which is uh, new legislation in Quebec, um, one of the requirements of Bill 151 is that all universities and SAGEPs have to have mandatory uh, training on this topic, on sexual violence prevention and response. So I... Uh, Since when has that been implemented, Bill 151? So this fall is the kind of start of when everyone has to have this in place. Interesting. And then in uh, January was when everyone had to have a sexual violence policy in place. 
Um, so luckily we already had a, a sexual violence policy. We just had to do some tweaks to it to make it fit with the requirements of the law. And then also luckily I had already started working on an online version of the workshops that I gave mm -hmm. in person. Um, so uh, the SARC team helped develop uh, this online content and then we worked with Knowledge One, which is a company that does all Concordia's e-learning. So we worked with them to um, turn it into a finished product, which we then have ended up sharing with almost all the universities and CEGEPs in Quebec, which is great. So a lot of universities and CEGEPs in Quebec up until January this past year haven't necessarily had a sexual assault resource center like Concordia has had for a while. Yeah, that's uh -huh. right. So uh, with Bill 151, not every school will necessarily have a sexual assault center, but they will have to have a point person. So someone who is designated to um, kind of, yeah, be the point person for sexual violence prevention, um, the response piece, supporting survivors. Um, and that, from what I've seen, um, tends to be people in the, the social services sector or in the counseling department at schools. Okay. What is your background? What got you into this uh, work? <laughs> I mean, I don't even know if I work. I mean, like life path, it's, it's huge. It's a huge undertaking. What, what brought you to this? Um, hmm. A bunch of different things. Um, so my educational background, that piece, um, I actually have my bachelor's in fine arts with a minor in women's studies. And then from there... Uh, I got my master's in social work from McGill and um, but I think so that's part of it um, I think also my academic work so when I was doing my master's I was very um, research focused I, I picked the thesis option rather than the internship option um, okay. I still think about doing my PhD that's something that I really love that, that research reading writing academia kind of stuff uh, and I was noticing that all of my academic work, whether it was my uh, master's thesis research or um, after my master's, during and after I worked uh, as a research coordinator on various different projects, and all of those things uh, I noticed tended to be uh, connected with the theme of like women's health and sexuality in some way. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so I think that was part of it too. I think volunteering with the, the Montreal Sexual Assault Center when I was in my early 20s was part of it. I think um, my background, like growing up, I, you know, from the age of 15 um, to probably 19 when I moved away from Calgary, I was involved in like an all ages kind of punk and activist type of um, friend group or community. And so I think that instilled a little piece of that in there too mm -hmm. um so becoming politicized at a, a younger age um identifying as a feminist at a younger age mm -hmm. things like that you told me when we were chatting before this podcast you said that uh the topic that comes up the most is the impact that sexual assault has on on the victim's intimate and sexual life and seeing and, and attempting to seeing their body in a sexual way again mm -hmm. can you kind of I guess talk us through that that process. How you would how the victim sort of um, feels about that. What you what what's most common and 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 how you work with them through that. Because I imagine 
you do, it's not it's not always a one time basis. Like you 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 probably follow up with victims, um, and so yeah, just how do you how do you counsel them? How do you work mm-hmm. with that? So that's one of many kind of themes that come up. Um, so there's that like difficulty with intimacy, um, difficulty trusting people, um, but there's also the impact on um, feelings of safety. Um, feelings about yourself, self-esteem, um, feeling like it was your fault, a lot of shame, embarrassment. Um, so um, the other thing to keep in mind is that most often, not always, but often the perpetrator of sexual violence is someone that's known to the survivor mm-hmm. victim. Um, so in situations where the person that sexually assaulted someone is their partner um, or their friend or, or someone that they trust, um, but I would say, especially partner, that adds a whole other layer to this conversation, obviously. Um, yeah, and so there's there's often really mixed feelings as well. Um, should I should I stay with this person? Uh, yeah, exactly. A sense right? of like attachment to the person. Like I do yeah. love them, but I have these conflicting feelings. And yeah, can I be intimate with them again? And, yeah. Well, and and like the, not to get too off topic, but this is another reason why it's so or can be so hard for people to disclose when something happens or to report it to the police because especially if it's a situation like that because um you know imagine the the conflicted feelings about well this is a person i love and care about and maybe i've built my life with this person and this person did something very wrong but i also don't want this person to be in trouble or Mm -hmm. to um, be arrested or for my friends and family to hate this person Mm -hmm. or or to pressure me to leave this person. So, um, yeah. So it, it's very, very uh, challenging in, in any situation. But I think that that is a particular one when it's a partner or someone you trust. And yeah, the the impact on intimacy and and trust is is a huge one. Um, one thing that, well, I guess there's a few things that that some of people I've worked with have found helpful, which is. Um, being able to talk to their partner about how they're feeling and have their partner be able to, um, whether the partner is the perpetrator or not, mm-hmm. have the partner be able to know enough about sexual violence to respond appropriately. And so that's another piece where the education is really important. So, and knowing how to respond to someone disclosing to you. Um, so, yeah, being able to be supportive knowing how to listen actively to someone, um, not kind of like usually, usually this isn't intended, but, um, not asking questions that would then cause someone to feel like you're blaming them or shaming them for what happened. Um, and, and knowing, knowing how sexual violence or experiencing sexual violence can impact someone's feelings about themselves. Um, I think that can help a lot is having your partner or someone else, be able to respond in this supportive way and um, and kind of get where you're coming from, even if they haven't experienced the same thing that you have. Um, and would you bring the partner into the conversation, into the the counseling sessions, or whatever medium you're you're sort of counseling the victim with? Would you, is that something that you would do? Um, it's something that has happened a couple times, but only because the the person I'm working with has really wanted that person to join us. Right. And 
I think that session would be more kind of a psychoeducational or like um, education around the impacts of sexual violence that, um, you know, all the things that this person is experiencing or expressing are normal, um, answering questions, things like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And where do you see your work has having the most impact? Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. Um, do you get that sort of feedback? Because it's just such a, a huge, uh, there's such, it's such a huge sea of, um, issues that come up and, and, you know, I can imagine that there's people that always come back for help and people mm-hmm. that steer away from it. Cause it's, it's too uncomfortable. Like I think that, well, I think that what you do is I'm, is sometimes a, a bit of a thankless job <laughs> sometimes, but so it's really a calling that you do it out of, out of, I mean, I don't even think that passion is the word, but mm-hmm. that sense of uh, p- activism and, and, and true need for it in the world. But yeah, I, I, I just wonder, do you get that? Do you get feedback from people and, and where do you see mm-hmm. that coming from? That's a, yeah, that's a really good question um, because it's, it's quite rare. So I think in different settings, um, like say, like my social worker who does the longer term counseling, I think for her, she might experience a bit more of that or in different settings of like long term therapy with someone, you'd maybe the therapist would experience a bit more of that. But um, the most of the work that I do um, when it's with one on one with clients or or with families or um, whoever they, they want to bring is very short term. Um, it's usually very urgent crisis situation right at the beginning uh, and then either I will keep following them um, or I will uh, refer them over to our social worker or or another therapist um, but yeah there are clients that continue to come back um, but usually yeah I mean well not usually I but quite often there are clients who will come once or twice and then you might not ever see them again Mm -hmm. and and then it's this tricky thing right because you don't want to continue to uh call them or email them and be like how are things going do you want to come back um yeah you know because (laughs) it's not really appropriate uh especially in this situation and there's tons of reasons why someone wouldn't wouldn't be ready or wouldn't want to come back and, and whatever tons of reasons and and that's fine um so yeah, so no, I don't necessarily get to see how someone um, changes over time or how their trauma heals or how they move forward or um, how things go for them after. Mm-hmm. And so that can be, uh, yeah, that can be a weird feeling because you're just, you just kind of don't know. Yeah. Um, and you hope that everything is going well uh, for that person, but most of the time you don't know. But you do, you do do a lot of, um, you're saying that one of the parts of your work is education and prevention and you, mm-hmm. and you lead workshops. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I find that to be uh, very interesting, not necessarily the delivering the workshop content over and over, but more the kind of questions that come up and the conversations that happen in, in those groups and it changes depending on the group it changes every time is it um um, do you do it at concordia yeah and is it only at concordia that you do it or can you um i've done a couple workshops outside of concordia uh and then we've also had um other facilitators 
who have done some with similar content outside okay. of Concordia too. But your focus is really on, on the yeah. university, yeah. which is it's a setting fraught with uh, yes. its own. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. a very par- particular setting. Um, the, I mean, Concordia is very diverse in terms of our student population, mm-hmm. in terms of age, in terms of um, ethnicity, background. Um, but a large part of our population is that that age, that like early 20s age, and that uh, the research suggests anyways that that age is kind of when a lot of sexual violence is experienced, um, especially for women at that age. I mean, women experience sexual violence across their lifespan, unfortunately. Um, men tend to experience sexual violence most often in childhood. Um, but for women, that, that age range, uh, 18 to 24, is um, quite particular. And so a large part of our population falls into that. And then you add in people being away from home for the first time. Uh, you add in drugs and alcohol. Mm. Um, you add in a bunch of new people. You add in living in, in you know, in a, in a residence setting. Um, mm. It's just so vulnerable. Yeah, there's so time. many vulnerabilities there. And oh, to not be 21 yeah. again. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. 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 God. Yeah. Yeah. So I think... It's the education part is really important, um, even if it's just a 101, um, getting people to have a shared language around this is one way to help people have more in-depth conversations or to at least start thinking about this. It gives mm-hmm. an entry point um, and, and it lets them know what the on-campus service is should they experience something like this, hopefully not, um, or if they want more information or they're concerned about a friend. Um, so it's a good starting point. Um, uh, we do in-person trainings with all student athletes, all students and residents, coaches, resident oh, assistants. Wow. And then we've been doing that for a few years. And then now with Bill 151, with this mandatory for everyone requirement, we have the online training, um, a version for students and a version for staff and faculty. But then we also have some in-person sessions for students and for staff faculty who, for whatever reason, don't want to take it online. Um, so that's in addition to all the the students that we already train each fall in person. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah. The anyways to go back to what you were saying before the 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 conversation and the questions is what I think is really uh, powerful and um, and kind of where a lot of the learning takes place in mm-hmm. those in person workshops because people. A lot of people haven't learned about this stuff before. Um, yeah. yeah. I was just going to say there's such a lack of sexual education. Mm-hmm. Um, like I I can't really remember like, I mean, there was like grade nine biology and maybe like a little bit of talk about it, but I learned a lot of my sexual education from magazines mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. YM and teen, which wasn't necessarily the best place to learn it from. It was yeah. all quite even for like women's magazines, like cosmopolitan, quite Mm -hmm. misogynistic uh, Mm -hmm. in a sense. And, um, and yeah. And I'm just like, so flabbergasted at the lack of sexual education and, and how untimely it is. Like when, 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 you know, young adults are 21, that's when they start to learn or, or when a crisis hits, that's when they finally learn about it. Like, I just find that Mm -hmm. that's like, why is that not being implemented from, you know, grade school, elementary school? Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, it should be right from the beginning, you know, and there's ways to talk to kids about 
consent um, and uh, in ways that are appropriate for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's ways to, to teach kids about respect and like your body and other people's mm. bodies. And yeah. So what kind of things do you do in the workshop? Are you able to talk about that on mm-hmm. the podcast? Yeah. yeah, so we go over um, definitions and uh, we talk a lot about consent. Um, we talk about consent and intoxication, um, mm. which could be a whole kind of training or a whole long, long conversation. Hot topic at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that could be a whole thing in and of itself. Uh, we talk about bystander intervention and how to intervene safely, ideally before something escalates. Uh, and then we talk about how to respond to a disclosure, how to support victim survivors uh, and what the resources are that are there to help you or help someone you care about or for you to refer someone to and how to do that. Mm-hmm. Have you seen more or less sexual assault cases in the last two years since the explosion of the Me Too movement? I have seen a steady increase in the number of people accessing the services at the Sexual Assault Center. And I think part of that is because of the Me Too movement. There are also other factors that I think play a role. So we moved offices into a more um, student-centered space. Um, We have been around for longer now. We've been promoting more. We've had campaigns. Bill 151 has highlighted a lot of stuff too. So I don't think it's all because of the, the Me Too movement, but I think it's de- that's definitely part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm. I've and also... The, yeah, go ahead. So I've also noticed um, since these high-profile cases in the last few years uh, have been very present, there's been an increased discourse, I think, publicly about this issue. I've noticed a lot more people coming in who are struggling with past traumas that have been resurfaced or on their mind again because of all of the discourse publicly or um, articles in the media about these high profile cases and so I think for some people that's caused a lot of distress is you know not even be able to turn on the tv or open your computer without seeing something about sexual violence yeah. uh, out there and so wow that's really yeah. interesting yeah makes you wonder if I mean the times that we're in right now it kind of makes you wonder well I mean obviously it's a good thing to be building awareness around it but uh, to what point does it become detrimental Mm -hmm. in a way like Mm -hmm. like yeah the trauma coming up yeah it's interesting to think about kind of the unintended consequences of some of these things that are um, quite positive in a lot of ways um, that we're talking about this um, that that people are feeling more able to disclose, to get help, to go to the police. Um, but then, yeah, there is this maybe unintended consequence of, well, wait a minute, what's happening to all the people that don't want to think about this all the time and don't want to be confronted with memories about things that have happened to them in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. This may be a bit of an impossible question to answer, and maybe it's not even a question, but I'm just trying to... F- maybe formulate a thought here but how in in your line of work and your colleagues and 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 social workers and counselors how do you address the gray area of date rape or date sexual assault there's i mean it's been coming up so much in in like in the press and in the media and 
how how do you address that? <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's a hard one. Yeah. Um, so I guess for me, the it it. Hmm. I think it's about expanding our understanding of what sexual violence is, and I think part of what helps to clarify the gray area. Uh, is to understand sexual violence as quite a large umbrella Mm. under which there are many different behaviors, uh, under which there's different forms of sexual harassment, there's um, uh, things that happen online, there's uh, different types of sexual assault, um, and, and getting away from this idea of sexual violence or sexual assault as being just rape um, and getting away from this idea that rape is this thing that happens from a stranger with a weapon in an alley kind of um, these ideas that we grow up learning um, from TV etc moving away from that and understanding sexual violence as a very very huge messy gray What's the word I'm looking for with this motion? Circular. Um, <laughs> All encompassing. It's, it's We're just, doing something with our arms. Um, <laughs> pot, stirring pot, cauldron of... Yeah, I guess the, the only way I can explain, or if, I, I guess what I'm trying to explain is that, yeah, like, it's this big umbrella. And and within that are all of these these different behaviors, attitudes, comments... Uh, online, offline, mm. and so that you have all that, and then you have a person who's experiencing the world, and that person might experience something as sexual assault or as sexual harassment, uh, and be very impacted or very negatively impacted by it. While someone else might experience the same thing, let's say it's like catcalling on the street, uh, and not be negatively impacted by it. And those two things can exist at the same time mm-hmm. under the same umbrella, mm. if that makes any sense. Yeah. Does and that make any sense? It absolutely does. And it can, whatever experience, if I'm, if I understand correctly, whatever the victim deems as sexual assault would, I mean, is it fair to say that that's, that's, that is sexual assault? I mean, this, see, this is, mm-hmm. I'm yeah. not even, I, I'm not even clear with myself because this is, this is the, that gray area, right? Like. So, yeah, so I guess a way to think about it is, okay, so you have, like, the legal definitions, right? You have the legal definitions of sexual assault. You have criminal harassment. You have stalking. You have um, the, the criminal code definition of consent and the situations in which consent is not present. Uh, then you also have people's experiences and feelings about those experiences. Um, so... So keep in mind that say even, uh, I shouldn't even say even, um, there's like this, this big kind of range, right? There could be like an unwanted, like non-consented to kiss. And then there's like unwanted penetration or rape. All those things fall under the umbrella of sexual assault and do so under the law. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, and, and I think the tendency is to be like, oh, well, this kind of sexual assault isn't as bad as, as this other kind. Um, but I think in that we have to remember that people experience things really differently um, depending on their like social location, their 
their background experiences or their past experiences. Um, so, so many reasons. And mm-hmm. so something that is uh, less severe for one person um, might be very severe for another. Um, so I think that's an important part of that gray area conversation. And I also think it's important to let survivor victims decide what words they want to use. Um, mm. So some people that I see don't want to use the word sexual assault. They don't want to call it rape or they don't want to call it whatever other term would fit. Um, but for them, it doesn't resonate and and that's okay. Um, a lot of people say things like, I had an uncomfortable experience or a weird experience or, um, you know, or I don't, I'll, I'll, I'll hear actually a lot, like, I don't know if this counts, quote unquote, mm. as sexual assault. Mm. Um, when in fact, what they're describing is a non-consensual um, sexual contact, uh, which under the law would count as sexual assault. Um, but there's this tension between what they've experienced and how they're making meaning from that experience and the narrative that they've grown up seeing on TV mm. or hearing around them that sexual assault is this thing over here and your thing wasn't that thing. So, Mm -hmm. so maybe you can't call it that, or maybe it doesn't quote unquote count. Um, so there's a lot of tensions in there floating Mm -hmm. around too. I don't want to put blanket, um, blanket generalizations, but let's just say that I assume that you probably see more victims that are women and perhaps hear about more perpetrators that are, Mm -hmm. that are, um, men. Yes. Um, And that's a blanket generalization, but I'm well, sure that exists for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> it's a generalization. Yeah. There, there are statistics to back up what you're saying. Right. <laughs> um, so 98% of perpetrators are men and, um, and, and perpetrating violence against women for the most part. And uh, I think the stat is 2% of perpetrators are women. Um, so... Yeah. yeah, it's it's not like a statement coming from nowhere. Right. Yeah. So what would be the most effective tool? Is it for the woman who could potentially be victimized to have the vocabulary or have the, the sort of learned clarity to say no or to express themselves in a way that's clear? And that in itself is complicated because you don't want to like put all of the onus on the victim to be the one to speak up Mm -hmm. or is it to give potential perpetrators or perhaps people with the you know a a sort of uh criminal past in that sense to have the resources for them to seek help if they need it or um the ability to understand that what they're doing isn't right what what mm. where where do we need to go because mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. i think that there's a lot of responsibility put on the woman mm-hmm. on the women at, at the moment to be like well may, you you got to learn how to be clear and you got to you know do certain things to not be assaulted but i i think that's a bit of diminutive mm-hmm. to think that but i don't yeah. i don't know what yeah i i i agree i think it, that's a really it's an outdated kind of way to see things right it's it's like um, people suggesting self-defense classes. Um, there's nothing wrong with self-defense classes. I think that's great, um, but uh, it's not going to necessarily prevent someone from sexually assaulting you, um, especially because we know that most sexual assaults happen in a private residence by someone known to the survivor victim who they mm-hmm. trust. There's 
usually not a weapon involved. There's usually not physical force involved. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, those situations do for sure happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's it's similar anyways in my mind to that that line of like, well, if we just teach women how to physically defend themselves, then it'll that'll solve the problem. Or if we teach women how to, well, women, and I would say men too, um, mm-hmm. uh, and trans people too, um, if, yeah, if we teach people how to scream no or to do this or to do that, that'll solve the problem. Um, I think that gives a false sense of security. I don't think it's effective. Um, and I don't think it's realistic considering what we know about when and how and where and by who sexual violence occurs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a really important focus of education needs to be on uh, people communicating, people communicating about boundaries, people checking in, um, the person initiating the sexual activity or the next thing that's about to happen, checking in, um, making sure that people are verbally saying like, yeah, I'm into this, or can I do this? Yeah, that's awesome, can I do that? Um, So having this kind of conversation that's going on while sexual activity is happening, um, which I think is, is, yeah, it comes down to respect, it comes down to communication, it builds trust. I think the other piece that you mentioned, which is really interesting, is um, the piece around helping uh, people address their behavior um, Mm -hmm. when their behavior has been harmful. And I think that's something that isn't often talked about. Uh, I'm working with a colleague now from McGill to develop a program for people um, who have caused harm under the umbrella of sexual violence and are voluntarily wanting to change their behavior and figure out um, what happened, why that happened, mm. and and how to make sure that doesn't happen again. Um, and I think that is an area definitely for further exploration. Um, there are very, very, very few resources for people who have caused harm in that way to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, the resources that do exist tend to be um, court-mandated resources or programs Um, They tend to be very focused either on anger management, domestic violence, or pedophilia. Um, There's really not much in in the way of of something that's there for people who actually are like, I really messed up. I did something awful. I really hurt someone. I violated someone. I broke their trust. Um, And I really need to address this. Mm -hmm. I need to figure out where that came from, um, what my beliefs and values are around women or around other men if that's the Mm -hmm. case um or people in general Mm -hmm. um and yeah figure out what's going on and address it uh i think i mean i think we're maybe still a ways away from getting to the point where people feel able to say i really messed up and i did this really horrible thing um but i hope that there comes a time where people can have those kind of conversations and mm-hmm. someone can say you sexually assaulted me and that person's response is going to be oh my god mm-hmm. I am so so sorry mm-hmm. and believe that person and and do something about mm. it hopefully when all of the subjects uh, in the umbrella of sexual assault mm-hmm. are addressed and less stigmatized mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that they'll be, it'll be an open conversation for everyone on all sides mm-hmm. i really hope so 
So sex is complicated at the best of times. <laughs> yes. But one of your areas of research lies in uh, sex and aging mm-hmm. or, and or sex and chronic chronic illness mm-hmm. and um and it's such a it's such an interesting and important subject that we really don't hear much about i mean all everything mm-hmm. all the advertisement for sex is towards you know people my age or you know between the the sort of 20 to 45 demographic kind of thing mm-hmm. can can you tell me about the about the impact that a disease or a chronic illness can have or, or even just aging on on mm-hmm. on the carers uh, mm-hmm. or the couple, and and the resources that they may have to help them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, this is an area I'm a bit less involved now. This was the focus of a lot of my um, research work. Um, but I think one thing that's common between the work I did around aging and and intimacy and sexuality. Um, as well as sexuality or the impact of having a chronic illness uh, or disability on your sexual or intimate life is that, uh, and and this was research with women in in both cases, and the commonality there is that as you age, um, you you are perceived as asexual. Um, If you're a woman with a disability or chronic illness, you are also perceived as asexual. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that... um, yeah, that, that if you are, and, and as well as a caregiver, if you're a caregiver um, you of, of a partner, let's say, with um, a chronic illness, um, if you're an older woman caregiver of a partner, uh, your, your identity as a um, person who has desires, who has sexuality, um, who, who has sex, uh, uh, gets kind of, overtaken by the identity of being a caregiver um wow so yeah so i find that really interesting um i mean i know your research was done on women but is that to say that that same image doesn't necessarily come up for men mm -hmm. for man caretaker Mm -hmm. or 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 aging men or an aging man yeah. yeah I think yeah, they're celebrated. They're like, yeah. you get it on key, get it on. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really like that. Just like you that. Just <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I don't think the same kind of um, thing has applied to men as they age. But yeah, it was interesting in that work to see how um, people found ways to maintain intimacy and connection despite maybe not having sex anymore um, or not talking about sex or feeling like their time as a sexual person was kind of over, whether that's because of aging or because their role of caregiver took over or mm-hmm. because um, if they were ill themselves because their illness took up most of their energy um, or caused shifts in their perception of themselves as someone who's a sexual being, all of this stuff combined. Um but I found it interesting the ways that people, uh, people's idea of intimacy or the ways that that was shared or expressed shifted. So there, there became more of an emphasis for, for these people anyways, um, on nice things that we do for each other or holding hands mm. or the emotional connection that you have with someone for, for the research I did, uh, on around disability, um, chronic illness and women's sexuality. Um, the, 
they kind of, uh, yeah, it went in a different direction um, for, for the, yeah, the impact of chronic illness and disability on, on sexuality in that work. Uh, it went in a different direction where I noticed that um, uh, I'm thinking of one, one person in particular that I did really, really in-depth interviews with. And she um, kind of turned that idea of becoming asexual and turned um, that idea of uh, disability or chronic illness kind of upside down in this way. So instead of feeling self-conscious uh, about having um, an ostomy bag, she um, made like really sexy, lacy kind of covers mm. for it. Mm. She got really into lingerie that like covered it in a certain way. Um, so she found these really creative ways to embrace her changed body mm -hmm. and embrace her sexuality um, in a world that is telling her that she's not sexy and she's not sexual because she's disabled or she mm -hmm. has this illness. Um, and yeah, so I found that really inspiring and I found also the kind of shifting um, ways of expressing intimacy in a couple really interesting too and, and kind of lovely um, in a way. Hmm. Like, yeah. can, can you give us some examples? I know you were saying, you know, touching hands and, and, mm -hmm. and probably just different ways of touching each other and, and mm -hmm. maybe developing more of an emotional, uh, mm -hmm. relationship. And mm -hmm. is that sort of, yeah, that, um, cuddling, um, there was one woman I remember talking to her and she, um, talked about how her husband, um, was no longer really able to sit up straight, um, um, but they were able to share intimacy in like him touching her breasts and mm. like, so she would be standing and he'd be like, um, kind of sitting hunched over a little bit, but that was a way that they, they could still have this like bit of intimacy and sexuality. Um, and for the most part, the, the women that I talked to, um, felt quite a bit of loss, um, did they but, did yeah. they feel asexual at certain points or no that was the interesting thing is that they didn't see themselves as asexual but they felt like there you know there wasn't anything really to do about it because well i mean i'm not asexual but i'm this age now and my partner is ill and so sort of giving up yeah there you thing. have it right. and i'm a caregiver and that's kind right. of my identity now yeah um yeah, so there was a lot of, there's feelings of loss and, and grief around that for sure. And I think that got uh, kind of reiterated again um, by the fact that when women would interact with healthcare providers, they were nev never asked about their sex life or their sexuality um, or their intimate life or their life with their partner. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was another interesting thing um, to note because... It's, you know, that idea of, oh, you're asexual now gets kind of reinforced by, by the outside, by your doctor, by whoever. Um, wow. Yeah. And are there any resources for those situations? Um, I would suggest that people uh, look up some kind, you know, there's usually caregiver support kind of groups um, through CLSCs would be one suggestion um, because, yeah, it can be quite lonely um, and there are topics like that, like sexuality, that um, 
really I think people would benefit from talking about um, and maybe a caregiver support kind of group would be Mm -hmm. a a place where that could happen cool that's thank you so much for sharing that that's so so interesting and Mm. like yeah new or at least new to me like we don't really hear about that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. JD how do you let go of all of this when you get home (laughs) I mean, I'm just like, it's just so much to take in and you're doing it day in, day out. Are, are you closed in the summer or I guess there's, it's, you're always open. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do? I mean, so this podcast is kind of want to avoid saying like self care, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it is about like, it it is about how women live their daily lives and how Mm -hmm. we deal with our struggles and failures. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you, what you do to clear (laughs) Mm -hmm. well um a bunch of different things so I take a lot of time for myself I live alone I have a dog and two cats and yeah Kia and Chanel and Janet and (laughs) (laughs) yeah um so that's my little family and we have lots of quiet time I read a lot of fiction novels. What are you reading right now? Escape into them. Uh, a book called Ask Me Again, Yes. Ooh, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's new. It's good? So far, very good. Cool. Yeah, very good. Um, yeah, so I read a lot of fiction to escape, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, I have some really, really close long-term friendships that are really, really important for me maintaining my sanity. I am pretty close to my sisters and I see a woman who practices traditional Chinese medicine once a week mm-hmm. and I uh, see a therapist and I sleep eight to ten hours a night mm-hmm. and I try to walk to work. Those are my secrets. <laughs> pretty great. Can you complete this sentence in one word? Mm -hmm. JD is a vehicle for... Hmm. As in, like, what do I give to the world? Whatever comes up. Someone said Hmm. on the podcast that they were a vehicle for a great hair weave. But what does that mean? <laughs> she had a, an amazing weave in her hair. I was like, three words, but okay. it could um, be anything that oh, comes to so mind. Oh, that's so creative, that one. JD is a vehicle for... Um, I'd say I'm a vehicle for curious questions, empathy, and creativity. That's wonderful. That's more than one word, but yeah, you know, no, I don't think anyone my, has answered with one word. That's my long answer. <laughs> Great. That's, I love it. Thank you so much, JD. If anyone from Concordia is listening, mm-hmm. they can go to SARC. The Resource Sexual Assault Center. Resource Center. We're in the hall building on the sixth floor, room uh, 645. Um, you can also call my extension at Concordia 3353 or email me at concordia.ca. It's a private confidential email, only I see it. And um, yeah, and we're, we're there for all Concordia students, staff and faculty. So 
um, yeah, reach out if you need to. And do you know of any uh, re- resources, uh, locations, hotlines that people who aren't at Concordia can contact? Yes. So uh, the Montreal uh, Sexual Assault Crisis Line uh, is free. It's 24-7. And the phone number is 514-933-9007. Great. And I'll, I'll be putting all that in the show notes as well. Amazing. Great. Thank you so much, JD. This has been really, um, really insightful. And uh, I hope that you get some thanks, even if it's from Janet and Chanel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I, I just, but, but, but I, I do want to thank you for, for the work that you're doing because it's just, uh, yeah, there's, it's so important. I don't think we could go without it so thank you so much and thank you for coming on to the podcast thanks for having me si vous êtes fan du balado if you're a fan of the podcast si vous aimez les différentes séries que je mets en onde j'aimerais beaucoup vos commentaires I would love if you could rate, review, star on any platform that you listen to the podcast on it makes it so much easier for independent podcasts like Her Story to be seen So thank you for listening. Merci beaucoup pour votre support et partager avec toute votre gang. Ciao!